Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to one of my favorite books, but one of the least read books in the Bible, the book of Lamentations, the book of Lamentations. I'll give you 30 minutes to find it. It's going to take some of you that long. I know it will. Lamentations in the Old Testament somewhere. So, uh, you know, if you go to Psalms, everybody can find Psalms. Just open up your Bible halfway. You go to Psalms, turn right and uh, just go a couple of blocks. You'll find it. Lamentations. We're going to read uh, from chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 33. I, I don't know, maybe you noticed there was an amazing thing happened up here in the children's sermon. I asked one person what his biggest problem was, and he said, you heard it, a splinter. Many of you have ever had a splinter before. A splinter. Raise your hand, Pookie. I know you've had one. Raise your hand really high. I saw that. Yeah, I've had a splinter before. They hurt. They really do. I'll tell you what hurts worse than having the splinter is having somebody else dig that bad boy out. That's right. See my hand right there? You can't see this. But right there, you see that right there? It's not a splinter. That's a pencil lid right there. You know when I got that? Sixth grade. And guess what? You're not digging it out because I'm not going to let you dig it out. You say, well, you're going to get lead poisoned. That's just fine. You're not digging it out. I don't care who you are. Right? Yeah. All right. But uh, back to what I was saying. Splinter. And then a little girl over here said, sinner. Splinter, sinner. That's two amazing problems, I think. You go from splinter and sinner. That just encapsulizes, we have... Physical problems, we have spiritual problems. Don't we? Do we? Hello? Y'all better not go to sleep on me. I haven't even read the scripture yet. (laughs) Right? Lamentations, chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing Love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. We approach this text at a real disadvantage 
And, and the reason we approach it at a real disadvantage is because there's nobody in this room, myself included, who can really empathize with the writer of Lamentations. And I really don't want to ever be able to empathize with the writer of Lamentations because he is writing in desperate grief over having lost everything that he has ever loved and known to adore. He and his people have been invaded by an enemy army, starved out for two years, and then had their their beloved city leveled, many of their fellow countrymen killed, and the most able and influential and potential field people carried away 800 miles to a land they'd never seen before where they would be held in captivity for 70 years. We don't know if the writer of this book was one of those captives carried away into captivity or if he was left to try to rummage through all of the rubble and, and, and fend for himself in the aftermath of such destruction. But whatever the case is, he is grieving out of the desperate bottoms of his heart. And you and I cannot possibly know that kind of grief. Because nobody has invaded us. Nobody has killed our best friends and taken us 800 miles away. Now, of course, you know, things like that could happen, but they haven't happened to us. And for that reason, we can't empathize fully with this guy. And I hope we never can. And he's writing a lament. A lament is a poem full of grief. Because you see, the writer of Lamentations is writing to grieve over the destruction of Jerusalem. Somewhere around 600 B.C., the world power at that time was Babylon. They had a king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you'll want to name some of your kids after Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure. Nebuchadnezzar and his army come down into Jerusalem. They capture some folks sometime around 605 B.C. and they carry them captive. They come back a few years later and they decide to surround the city of Jerusalem. They surround it. They lay siege to it. Nobody can come into Jerusalem with food stuff and new clothes and stuff like that. And nobody in Jerusalem can escape and get out. And so for two years, they are starved out. And then after two years of starving these people out and weakening them physically, Nebuchadnezzar sends his massive army into Jerusalem, destroys it, destroys the temple, levels those city walls, kills thousands of people, takes thousands more 800 miles away into captivity, leaves some people behind to fend for themselves. And this writer, who does not identify himself, many scholars believe this is Jeremiah, certainly sounds like Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived during that time, but he does not identify himself. But Jeremiah, uh, like this, this writer, writes in, in grief. Jeremiah said in one, on one occasion, he says, I wish that my eyes were a well of water so that I could keep everlastingly crying for the daughter of my people. He had cried until he couldn't cry anymore. The writer of Lamentations felt the same way. But in writing his grief, 
he discovered two things that uh, were surprising to him. The first was that while he thought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were the cause of their misery, in writing Lamentations, he found out, he discovered that behind Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians was God himself inflicting discipline on the nation of Judah. That was a hard, raw revelation to discover that it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, but behind them, God was using them to discipline the nation of Judah. That was tough to reckon with. The second thing that that he discovered was that in spite of how dark and miserable their condition was, there was a glimmer of hope. And he writes about both of those things here in the book of Lamentations. There are some interesting facts about Lamentations that uh, I want to share with you. You'll also see them up on the slide. One is that Lamentations is a single poem that's five chapters, and it is a five-chapter poem. Now, some of you are looking at that. If you have your Bibles uh, open or your cell phones or pads open to your Bible, I know your cell phones are open to your Bibles. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. You've got your cell phones open to your Bibles. You're looking at Lamentations chapter 3 and you're saying, this is not a poem. This is not a poem. It doesn't rhyme. That's right. It doesn't rhyme because Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. There's no Hebrew poetry that says, uh, tick, tick, tock, three mice run up a clock. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like sunset and evening star and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. There's nothing like that because Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Instead of rhymes, like what we'd find in most English poetry, they have little parallelisms. They'll state one thing on one line, and then they will, they will kind of restate it in different words on a second line. That's a parallelism. And Lamentations is a single poem that consists of five poems, five chapters in this one poem, and each chapter is a poem in and of itself, and it's about grieving over the fall of their beloved city, uh, Jerusalem. Now, the most striking feature of Lamentations, and this, this is what makes this, this book one of my favorite books. It's not because it's easy to read. In fact, it is, it is terribly difficult to read. It really is. How many of you just love to read depressing things? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. Not a person, except for maybe one. We just don't do it. This is very depressing. It's hard to read. But here's the, here's the striking feature about uh, these poems is that they are what scholars call acrostics. You ever heard of acrostic before? Have you? All right. Connor Cody has heard about it. You know why? Because Connor Cody took my Old Testament class at Bruton Parker. That's right. That's right, Mr. Connor Cody. An acrostic. An acrostic is a poem in which the first word of each line, verse, or stanza begins with a successive letter of the alphabet. Each line or verse or stanza begins with a word that begins with a successive letter of the Alphabet. So if in English we were looking at a poem that was an acrostic, the first line would begin with a word that starts with the letter A. 
And the second liner stanza would begin with a word that starts with the letter. And the third line or stanza would begin with a word that starts with the letter. You folks are so quick. You're so quick. That's an acrostic. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, in Hebrew, instead of having 26 letters in the alphabet like we do, in Hebrew they have 22. Okay. And so if you have a Hebrew acrostic, a poem that is an acrostic, you have a poem that's made up of 22 verses, lines, or stanzas. One verse, line, or stanza for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And with each one of those, the first word of each of those successive lines or verses or stanzas begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, are you with me so far? Hello? Don't check out. Listen, in the first service, they checked out with me at at 7 minutes and 43 seconds, and it was just gone. So you ready for this? Here we go. Watch this. The first two poems, you have five chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 make up the first two poems, all right? In those poems, each stanza has three lines, 22 stanzas made up of three lines each. And in those first two poems, the first line of the three lines has the acrostic. In other words, the letter A began the first word on line one, but not line two and three. And then on the second stanza, B started line one, but not line two and three and so forth and so on. That's that's poem one and two. Then there's poem three in chapter three. And in it... You have, again, 22 stanzas. Each stanza has three lines. But in in the third poem, each of the three lines has the acrostic. Not just line one, but line one, two, and three. We can't see this in English. It's only in Hebrew. I'm sorry. The fourth poem, the fourth poem has 22 stanzas. But this time, each stanza has not three lines, but two lines And only the first of those two lines has the acrostic. Now, here's the kicker. Are you ready for this? Listen to this. The fifth poem, chapter 5, has 22 lines, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But guess what? The acrostic is gone. The shell for the acrostic is there, but the acrostic itself is gone. Now, the writer of Lamentations doesn't tell us why he does this. I have an idea, and it's just an idea. It's a very uneducated idea, I suppose, but here's my idea. You see, acrostics in Hebrew poetry were a, a, uh, they were an indicator of Hebrew presence, the presence of Jewish people and culture. And so when you look at Lamentations, it starts out with a slight acrostic, the presence of Hebrew culture continues in, in poem number two. In poem three, it's really intense. Every line is the acrostic. It's very intense. Then it weakens a little bit in poem four. And then in, in poem five, the place is there, the shell is there, but the Hebrew presence is gone. It's a sad, a sad acrostic. Because it's an empty acrostic. Because the writer of Lamentations is looking over this land, the shell of a city, the shadow of what it used to be. And he's saying the shell is here, but the people, the culture, what we loved is gone. See what I'm saying? Now, I have a slide up here for those of you who are absolutely, you're thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, so what I've done, what I've done, I've put all five poems up here like this in this little symbol. These are the five chapters of Lamentations. The first chapter, you have 22 
of these three line stanzas. I've only put the first three right over here. And the first line of the three lines, A and then B and then C. Each line starts with a word that starts with those letters. Same thing with poem two. Raise your hand if you see that poem one and two are identical up there. Raise your hand. Poem three. Poem three, you have 22 stanzas, three lines in each stanza. But in poem three, notice that the the acrostic is on every single line, not just the first of each three. You see that? Raise your hand if you see that. I don't know. Poem four. Poem four, they go from three lines each to two lines each. And the acrostic is just on the first line of each one. And then poem five. One line each. Each stanza is one line and there's no acrostic. You have the shell for it, but no acrostic. What's he trying to say to us? Let me share with you five things that I believe he's trying to say to us. Keep in mind, he is in the worst of situations. And yet... In the worst of situations, God tends to speak so very loudly. First of all, I want you to know this, that God's love and faithfulness know no end. Now, we have no problem with that statement, do we? God's love and faithfulness know no end. But this guy is saying that in the aftermath of losing everything that meant anything to him. Now, I don't have any problem with this statement when things are going good with Jimmy Orr and his family and his life. But when things are not good, when life tumbles in, when, when, when all of a sudden I am hit from left field by a bulldozer, unexpected crisis, all of a sudden it's so hard to look up and say, God, does your love and faithfulness really have no end? I'm kind of on the butt end of this bulldozer, brother. This guy was on the butt end of the bulldozer, and yet he was able to say, God's love and faithfulness have no end. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. One of the greatest hymns of our faith, great is thy faithfulness, is based upon Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy affections, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. In our deepest, darkest of times, God's love and faithfulness known and win. Now here's, here's a second thing that we hear from this verse, this passage. This is where it gets a little hard to take. And it's this, God's love is often masked in our difficulties. Now, that goes against logical, practical, rational human thinking. Because you see, logical, practical human thinking says this, if God loves me like he says he does, then he should protect me from Anything negative, anything evil, any pain, any hurt, any trial, any difficulty, any hardship, any darkness whatsoever, he should protect me from that if he really loves me. After all, that's what I try to do for my kids is protect them from danger, protect them from from, uh, 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 excessive pain. So why doesn't God do that? I do that. Why do I do that? Because I love my kids. So why doesn't God do that? That's a good question. 
The fact of the matter is, though, and we need to hear this. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. God does not work according to human logic, human rationalization and human practicality. God has a whole different paradigm that he works through, and we don't get that, nor will we ever get that. In fact, it's impossible for a limited human mind to understand an unlimited God paradigm. Hello? Hello? God's love often is masked cloaked in the difficulties that you and I face. That leads me to number three, difficulties when they come. Raise your hand if you've ever had difficulties in life. Raise your hand if you did not raise your hand just then. Everybody has difficulties. Difficulties are not a sign of God's disfavor. Just ask Job. Leads me to number four. Difficulties, rather, are evidence of God's concern for us. How about that? How about that for a new way of thinking? The difficulties that God either allows in your life or sometimes brings in your life, He brings them not because He doesn't like you and no longer favors you, but He allows them or brings them because of His concern for you. Verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke, bear burdens, bear the struggles. Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. Did you hear that? I'm reminded of Jeremiah 29 where Jeremiah writes a letter to the captives who've been carried over into Babylon. You understand they're over in Babylon and they don't believe God's going to let them stay there long because after all they're God's people. They didn't think God was going to allow their temple to be destroyed. He allowed it to be destroyed. They didn't think their city, God would allow their city to be destroyed. He allowed their city to be destroyed. They didn't think that God would allow them to be carried away into captivity. He allowed them to be carried away into captivity. But they're standing over there in Babylon. And they still have their suitcases in their hands. Honey, there's no need to open up these suitcases. We're God's people. He's not going to let us stay out here that long. So Jeremiah writes a letter to him in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, he says, first of all, you need to unpack your suitcases. This is a paraphrase. You need to unpack your suitcases. You need to build houses. You need to give your daughters to men to be married. You need to give your sons to daughters to be married. You need to build houses. You need to make peace of the people who are there. You're going to be there a while because you are there because, the, and this is, you can go check me on this. This is Jeremiah 29. The Lord has put you there. What is your problem? What is your biggest problem right now? What is your biggest obstacle, your biggest trial? And, and what do you think about this? God either allowed that obstacle, that trial, that difficulty in your life, or he purposely put it there. And the fact that it is there is an indicator of his love and concern for you. Number five, God's love shines best through our difficulties. I heard a story. I do not know if it is a true story. 
But here's the story I heard. I heard a story about a little boy who, at age four, was uh, afflicted with a disease, some sort of fever that rendered him blind for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but my own opinion, if I'm going to be blind, uh, I, I'd just soon be born blind, personally. That's just me personally. Rather than be able to see for four or five years and then uh, be blind. And I'll tell you why, because if I'm born blind, that I, I don't have to miss what I used to see. He was four years old, about four and a half, when he got a fever, and he, it, it struck him as blind. And, and so his parents, as most parents would be, they, they sought to overcompensate for his loss by absolutely doing everything for him as opposed to letting him do some things, even forcing him to do some things on his own. And so, especially his father. His father somehow felt guilty for, for the boy having this fever. It wasn't the father's fault. But the father would do everything for him. Feed him, clothe him, get him up, put him to bed, uh, uh, drive him places, uh, help him walk. Uh, everything he, he, would, he would do for him. Instead of making the boy pick up something in his room, the father would pick it up for him. And uh, what it did, it spoiled the boy rotten. And uh, as he got into teenage years, teenage years are already hard enough, but as he got into teenage years, what normally would have been normal adolescent rebellion became outright bitterness. Bitterness at his parents, bitterness at life, bitterness at himself, and especially bitterness at God for allowing this thing to happen to him. And one day, when he was about 16 years old, he was tromping through in his bitterness. He tripped over something, and in falling, he broke his leg. And ended up, they had to do surgery. They put him in a cast. And um, his father tried to help him in the therapy, and it just got worse. So the father made a decision. Father said, I, I finally come to realize after all these years that as long as I help him the way I have been helping him, he will never learn to do some things on his own. And so I'm going to do something that's so hard for me to do. I'm going to force him to do for himself. And so he locks the young man in his bedroom. Now, occasionally they would slip food in there, so they weren't starving the kid out. But, but they, they locked him in his bedroom and forced him to clothe himself, get in the bed by himself, get up by himself, feed himself, you name it. And it made this boy so mad because he was, had a broken leg. He was trying to learn how to walk again. They didn't care anything about him because they weren't helping him to walk again. And they weren't helping him by feeding him. They weren't picking up after him. He was so angry and he would scream. Sometimes he would scream for hours on end. Until finally, after a few days of this, now I know somebody's thinking here, they're thinking, man, that was really child abuse to lock that kid in that bedroom. Although, although let me tell you something, a, 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 a normal teenager loves to be in his or her bedroom and nobody knocking on that door. I'm telling you right now, I've, I've had teenagers before you don't go, they, know, yeah, they like staying in that room. We're going to Florida. I'm staying in my room. We're going to the mountains. I'm staying in my room. We've got banana pudding for supper. I'm staying in my room. It's incredible. The 
boy's screaming in his room until finally he screams so hard that he's so hoarse he can't scream anymore. And so he says, they don't give a rip about me. They're not going to care about me. And so finally he gets up and he starts feeding himself. He starts clothing himself. He'll even start bathing himself there in his bedroom. He starts getting the crutches up. And although he stumbles and he falls, he, he manages to uh, provide his own physical therapy. And he learns how to walk right there in the confines of his room. And one morning he gets up. After all of this days of doing this, he gets up and he gets his crutches. He puts on his clothes. He makes it to the door and he turns the doorknob as he does every single morning. And on this particular morning, the door is unlocked. He has no idea when the door had been unlocked. He unlocks it. The door creaks as he slides it slowly open. And he's thinking, man, I'm free. And so he gets his crutches and he starts out and he tumbles over something in the doorway, falls over. Luckily, this time he did not break anything. He was just inconvenienced a little bit. You know what he tripped over? His dad. Day and night, his dad had camped out just outside the door of the boy's room. You and I have difficulties sometimes. Quite often those difficulties are seemingly insurmountable. And it it seems to me at times that God just doesn't give a rip. And I scream. It's okay to scream. And I holler. It's okay to holler. Some Christians say, oh, you never holler. Holler. Because you know what I found? is just outside that door, camped out and never moving, never forsaking me, is my Lord Jesus Christ, who is always with me, even when it seems that he's not around. How great is your faithfulness, O God. I think I'll just leave it at that. Let's pray. O God, our Father, you're so good to us, so faithful to us. We will never fully comprehend, nor should we be able to fully comprehend all that you do on our behalf. Even when We think you're not there. You're just just a breath away. And you hear every scream, every hurt, every bitter yell that we make because you're there, usually grieving right along with us. And so, Lord, when we are at our darkest, we are never without hope. Because you are the God of all hope. And though the light of hope we may see in the great distance may appear just minuscule, we thank you, Lord, that that hope is growing and that we are never, never hopeless when we put our trust in you. Great is your faithfulness. 
Thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.